0: Welcome back everyone to the Sports Politica Podcast, the show that guides you through the dark underbelly of sports, power, and politics. I'm your host, Karim Zidane, and today we have a special Q&A edition of the show. I've selected a handful of questions about a wide range of topics to answer throughout the course of today's episode, and I plan on hosting these Q and A listener sessions about once a month on the podcast. So please subscribe now on your favorite streaming platform, and at the same time, subscribe to the Sports Politica newsletter on Substack, where you'll be able to send in questions as well. Now let's get on with the show. Our first question comes to us from the real D on Substack who's a loyal follower and reader of the show. So thank you very much, Dean, for sending in this question. And he asks, I was wondering if Karim could share his thoughts on the MMAJA. Was he approached to join it? Was he a part of it and then left? Well, thank you very much, Dean, for the question. So the MMMJA, the Mixed Martial Arts Journalists Association, is an entity that I haven't actually ever been involved with. So what I can tell you is that in about 2018, the MMAJA reached out to me to say that I'd been nominated for the role of at-large officer, so director of the association, and they wanted me to consider accepting the nomination and entering the election as a candidate. So I opted not to accept the nomination for several reasons. First of all, at the time, I was already serving as a member of the Canadian Association of Journalists. I was actually a regional director at the time, and I quite enjoyed the the role I had, and I didn't really have much room for more than one directorial role in a journalist organization. So I opted to stay with the Canadian Association of Journalists, which I believed had really achieved more as a journalistic association, and it was the entity that I wanted to back at the time and work with. The truth is is that I've had a very tenuous relationship with the mixed martial arts community, including mixed martial arts journalists as well. While I respect the work that my colleagues have done over the years, at the end of the day, I am not a massive fan of the state of the industry and the state of the journalism industry. This includes mixed martial arts. I mean the end of the day, it's it's quite a sorry state of affairs. There's only really a handful of actual journalists in the industry right now. There are less MMA websites operating than there used to be in the heyday and the peak of the sport. There are less opportunities for journalists to hold positions in sort of the the, the big five, let's say, journalism websites uh, in, in mixed martial arts. I mean I can just say from the from what we've seen in 2023 I mean Bloody Elbow which is one of the top mixed martial arts websites in the space was let go of by Vox Media which owned MMAfighting.com, MMA Mania and Bloody Elbow. They opted and decided that three mixed martial arts websites was just way too many. So it goes to show you that Bloody Elbow which really of the three websites Bloody Elbow was the one producing legitimate journalism, actual journalism questioning power. That was the one that they decided to let go of. So, what we've seen instead is the rise of more influencers in the space. You'll see that the UFC is offering more credentials now to these influencers, basically, and these videographers and these social media people, rather than they are actually giving journalism and journalists access to. Their events this is very very problematic and the problem is is that the mixed martial arts journalists association has done absolutely nothing to change the state of affairs they've held a few elections over the years they released a statement here and there but they've done absolutely nothing else worth its salt and to be fair they really haven't even posted anything online on their twitter account which i have open in front of me now since january 19 2022 so it's almost been two years since this MMAJA has actually said anything. They don't even, they have a website here, the MMAJA.com. If you click on it, it takes you to a fatal error. The website's not even active. So how can we take such an entity seriously? Of course I would end up putting my backing behind something such as the Canadian Association of Journalists. And while I'm no longer a regional director there, it is still the association that I would back of the two. I legitimately do not believe that there is an entity in mixed martial arts that's been able to unify us as journalists or one that was willing to back the actual journalists putting their themselves at risk for the sport. Not simply the beach reporters covering the sport in those interests. And since their interests did not match mine, I simply had no interest of joining them. I mean, God bless, all the best to them. If they ever start up again, I will be there watching, but I have no interest in joining. Next question comes to us from my good friend Tim Bissell, who asked a couple of months ago, We've read a lot of your work on Russia, Chechnya, and Saudi Arabia with regards to sports washing. Is there another nation you find particularly interesting, active in the process? (laughs) Well, Tim, honestly, this is a question I can dedicate an entire podcast to. Hell, I could probably dedicate an entire series on. Just because there are so many different countries worth exploring. I know that the appeal of the Kadyrov topic, just pretty much due to the absurdity of the things he does, has been really interesting to mixed martial arts fans. And of course, the rise of Saudi Arabia as this uh, unprecedented sporting influence in 2023 in particular. These are more or less the main topics and the things that I am guilty of covering a lot more than your average uh, topic, really. But I believe that there are plenty of countries out there that are worth exploring. I'm going to give you really, let's say one example for now. How about Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda? So, this man is known probably by most of the world as this national hero and sort of global darling for commanding the rebel force that ended the Rwandan genocide in 1994. However, since he was first appointed to political office in 1994, after he ascended to the presidency, he's really been accused of widespread human rights atrocities. These thi- these include things such as forced disappearances, assassinations of political opponents, and torture, safe, state-imposed censorship. His regime helped launch two wars as well in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that on its own led to the deaths of 5 million people, if not more. That is an almost unimaginable figure. And the truth is that Kagami really managed to get away with, with this for quite a long time until over the years, especially past sort of the late 2000s, he was there was a lot of mounting criticism against Kagami and his regime. So Kagami started turning to sports to sort of further his image as this magnanimous leader. In 2002, he began sponsoring the Council for East and Central Africa Football Association's football tournament, which he then renamed the Kagame Interclub Cup. Eventually, years later, he turned to basketball around in 2018, when he helped Masai Ujiri, the president of the Toronto Raptors and the NBA commissioner Adam Silver, open the Giants of Africa camp in Kigali, which is the capital of uh, Rwanda. The following year he himself made an appearance at the Oracle Arena to watch a playoff game between the Golden State Warriors and the Houston Rockets. He was given tickets by the NBA and arrived with a seriously sizable entourage. Silver later called Kagami and his family very knowledgeable NBA fans and thanked the leader for his support of basketball. So, This is really how Rwanda has been able to sort of utilize sports to distract from human rights abuses. And it didn't really stop there. Rwanda ended up hosting the very first edition of the Basketball Africa League, the BAL. And uh, since then, Kagame has also continued to apply this sort of tactic with other sports as well. In terms of his sports interest, I think he actually might be best known as this mad Arsenal fan. Arsenal being the football club in the English Premier League. He eventually ends up setting this sort of lucrative sponsorship deal for Arsenal as Rwanda's official tourism partner. It involves this sort of Visit Rwanda logo being emblazoned on the team shirt sleeves. And uh, this deal sort of began around 2018 and was worth around $40 million dollars. Well, that's a sizable, sizable figure. Kagami himself claimed that, you know, this deal on its own paid it paid for itself in, in tourism revenue. So I have the quote here from him actually. The partnership we have with Arsenal has actually attracted more people who have been who have brought to the country more money than we have given Arsenal. You don't have to be a very sharp businessman, I am not one myself, but I think this one, we got it right. So that really is Kagame in a nutshell. He is more than happily to utilize sports and to leverage sports as a means to distract from human rights abuses. But he's also utilizing sports, mainly football and basketball, through sponsorships and through hosting events to present Rwanda in a new light and to expand this country's influence and brand recognition. So to answer your question here, Tim, I really think a country that we should be paying more attention to, and that I intend to personally pay more attention to, is Rwanda. The next question comes to us from Matt on Substack, who asks, there seems to be a larger crossover of MMA and pro wrestling fans than MMA and boxing fans. Why do you think that is? Well, Matt, to be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure... That we can prove that there is necessarily a larger crossover of MMA and pro wrestling than MMA and boxing. If you have the stats, I'd love to see them. But I'll talk talk you through my personal experience because I do believe there is definitely a significant crossover of MMA and pro wrestling fans. I happen to be one of them. I grew up as a fan of the WWE. I grew up in the Attitude Era. Grew up watching The Rock. Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, Mankind, that was my WWE and I was, I was hooked. And to this day, I hold a nostalgia for the WWE and I will watch WrestleManias, I will watch the big shows, and I occasionally still write about the WWE because it's very relevant to my work, especially with regards to Saudi Arabia. Now, I would count as one of those people who was interested in the crossover. Believe it or not, when I was introduced to mixed martial arts as in university, it was my first year of university, so it's about late 2009, maybe early 2010, and I very much remember my friend when he was trying to convince me to watch mixed martial arts, uh, he didn't necessarily reference boxing he didn't he told me it was violence you're gonna enjoy it sure but when i rolled my eyes and i said what's the point here he said think of it as real wrestling so all those things you wanted to see in the wwe think of it actually happening real here now he was obviously dumbing down what mma was but it worked on me it absolutely worked and to be honest i think There is an element of the theatrics that people do enjoy. If you're a wrestling fan, then you don't necessarily have much of an issue with violence. And if that's the case, then you're more than more likely to also enjoy other violent sports and crossover sports uh, like mixed martial arts. But there's also no reason why a pro wrestling fan can't also enjoy boxing and why a boxing fan wouldn't also have been interested in wrestling, especially growing up. We also have to note that mixed martial arts also has uh, some really bombastic and brash characters in it, which resemble a lot of the heels we would see in wrestling growing up, heels being the bad guys, so to say. So I think this is really another sort of uh, common denominator you have between pro wrestling and mixed martial arts. And at the end of the day, there clearly has to be a significant broad crossover appeal because we just saw the WWE and the UFC sort of merge into this newfound corporation called TKO. So clearly Endeavor and WWE found some sort of commonality there and believed that their fan bases were close enough that it was worth unifying their companies and standing as a single entity. But Matt, I also think I have to mention that I think there's a significant amount of MMA fans who really don't care much for pro wrestling. I mean, I've seen it myself on Twitter. On the nights that you've got a WrestleMania, you'll usually have a lot of those you know, hardcore MMA fans sort of poo-pooing it, saying, well, and you always can rely on this day being the one day that I'm not going to be on Twitter, saying statements like that. You even have prominent uh, journalists and... And, and influencers and representatives in the mixed martial arts space who flat out say they can't stand pro wrestling. I always think of my personal favorite pundit in the sport being Luke Thomas. He's really not a fan of pro wrestling, and he's a person I'll take his opinion far more seriously generally about mixed martial arts than almost anybody else. So the crossover doesn't necessarily have to apply to everybody, but you're absolutely right, it is there. Dion Georgiou on Substack asks, I really enjoyed the first episode of the podcast, Karim. I did want to ask, having heard what you said about MMA in Chechnya, given what I've seen of the role of MMA fighters in right-wing politics and disinformation in the US, and the recent role of Conor McGregor in inciting right-wing riots in Ireland, is there a particular connection between MMA and right-wing politics more generally? And if so, is there pushback against it within MMA as an industry and its fandom? Now, thank you for your questions, Jan. And I can tell that you sent in this question before I had published the second episode of the podcast, which actually delves specifically into that topic. I try to answer the question of why are so many MMA fighters turning to right-wing activism, pivoting to right-wing or far-right politics? And the question I raise it because of what's been happening with Conor McGregor in Ireland and how he really does seem to be emerging as a darling of the far-right. So I highly recommend you tune into that episode where I dedicate over half an hour to attempting to answer that very specific question. But I will try to answer one point here, which is your last bit of the question asking about pushback against this rise in this trend within MMA and within the fandom. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a cynical answer on my part because I don't really see much pushback against this right wing trend. As a matter of fact, just in the past few days, as I've written about Conor McGregor and published a podcast episode dedicated to answering this question, I've seen a lot of people in the fan base simply say, Who cares? It's a political opinion. They're allowed to have it, while also calling me things such as, you know, Soy Boy and Snowflake and the things you've come to accept from, you know, shithead cesspool MMA Twitter. So unfortunately, Dion, I don't really think much is going to be changing anytime soon. But thank you so much for your question. Shafiur Rahman on Substack asks, you have written about Hamzat Chemayev here and there and his closeness to the Chechen strongman Ramzan Kadyrov. Do you think his inactivity before the recent Usman fight Was due to visa issues stemming from this? Indeed, does he have U.S. visa issues? Do you know? And what is the backstory regarding his move from Sweden to the United Arab Emirates? This is really an excellent question, Shafiyur. And here's why. So, for those of you listeners who don't know the full story, Ramzan Kadyrov, the dictator and warlord in Chechnya, has been sanctioned by the U.S. Department of Treasury for his uh, various war crimes over the years. But it's not just him as an individual who has been sanctioned. His mixed martial arts fight club, Ahmed MMA, and his MMA promotion have also been sanctioned. So that means that all the UFC fighters who are affiliated with Ahmed MMA technically fall under those sanctions as well. However, Hamza Chimaev has continued to, especially him being a primary UFC star, has continued to associate with Kadyrov, with little consequence overall. However, he has spent the vast majority of sort of the last year not fighting. And none of us really had any good reasons for that, nor were we given any good reasons by the UFC or by Chemayev or his team whatsoever. Eventually, he he announced that he was moving from Sweden, where he was a permanent resident to the United Arab Emirates, where he would be uh, permanently located. And at the same time, it was announced that he was going to be taking part in a fight at UFC 294, which was taking place in Abu Dhabi. I had been informed uh, numerous times by sources that Hamza Chimaev was dealing with visa issues. And this was something that had been a rumor that had been spreading around the MMA space. But I had some solid, solid sourcing uh, that suggested that he was really struggling to enter the United States. However, when I did reach out to the US Department of State they have a policy where they do not inform you of whoever is actually on these visa ban lists or travel ban lists. So unfortunately, they would not confirm or deny whether Hamza Chimaev was being sanctioned. What they did let me know, however, was that they were fully aware of the UFC fighters associated with, Ham- with uh, Ramzan Kadyrov. That was very significant. That tells me that the U.S. government is at least aware, actively, aware of the issues taking place right now. Given that, it makes sense that the UFC would attempt to avoid sanction issues entirely by not hosting any of those Ahmad-affiliated fighters, those Kadyrov-affiliated fighters, on US soil. Because that could be very problematic for the UFC if the US government decided to push through with those sanctions. So instead, the UFC is now hosting these types of fighters, these controversial fighters who are technically under sanction because of their relationship to Ramzan Kadyrov, in the United Arab Emirates, where they are able to dodge those sanctions with no issues whatsoever. I think this also, Shafiur explains why Hamza Chemaev would want to live in the United Arab Emirates full time. He's able to avoid European sanctions or any questions about his relationship to Russia and why he's living in Sweden. So that's one issue off the table. He's able to live in the United Arab Emirates, which is a place where Kadyrov frequents regularly. So do Kadyrov's henchmen. Kadyrov has a property in Dubai. And he's definitely far more influential there than he was in Sweden. So this is a great way for Chemayev to also maintain a strong relationship with Kadyrov that doesn't also require him to regularly go to Chechnya or to Grozny. The United Arab Emirates is also where Chemaev is training right now. And he just so happens to be training at this facility called TK MMA that's run by Tam Khan. And Tam Khan himself has had no sort of qualms about associating with controversial figures. As a matter of fact, Tyson Fury once visited his gym, but he visited it alongside Daniel Kinahan, the Irish gangster and alleged drug cartel leader. And apart from that, Tam Khan also visited Chechnya to have dinner with Ramzan Kadyrov once and took a little selfie there that included Mike Tyson in the background. So it goes to show you what type of circles these men are all running in. And it just seems to be that Hamza Chemaev's life is going to be a lot simpler if he lived in the United Arab Emirates than if he continued to live in Europe. I mean, when he's training at TK MMA, he's able to bring in His little entourage, which include Ramzan Kadyrov's teenage sons, to train with him there. No questions asked whatsoever, with no issue for these people to enter the country or to leave the country. Nobody in the UAE is asking them any questions. There is also the note that if Hamza Chemayev is a practicing Muslim, he might be more comfortable living in a more conservative society and a place where he's surrounded by a much larger Muslim community, both local and from the diaspora. So I think this sort of roughly in a couple of minutes here answers your question, Shafiur, and I think... Over the next few months, I think we're going to continue to learn more about why Hamza Chemayev is currently based in the United Arab Emirates and whether the UFC actually has been dodging sanctions over the past while. We shall see. But thank you so much for that excellent question. From TKO Talk on Twitter. Have you heard of the rumor of Endeavor potentially selling to Saudi? If so, are there any real legs to this? Well, I'll be honest with you. I haven't heard this rumor at all. And maybe that's just me, but I'm not really a business reporter and I did not focus on Endeavor's moves recently. What I have seen is that Endeavor seems to have mended the fences with Saudi Arabia. If you remember, listeners, it was actually Ari Emanuel, the CEO of Endeavor, who had returned some uh, initial funding that the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia had invested into Endeavor shortly after he found out about the assassination and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. He was actually probably the most high-profile businessman in the United States who made an actual statement and attempted to sever ties with Saudi Arabia. He has since attempted to restore those ties, and it's been evidently clear since the WWE merged into TKO with the UFC, it appeared at the time that Ari Emanuel was on the way to mending those fences because the WWE continued to maintain its uh, partnership, its long-term partnership with Saudi Arabia, with no issue whatsoever from Ari Emanuel. The truth is, while I don't necessarily think that Endeavor is currently looking to sell to Saudi Arabia... It does not surprise me at all if it does turn out to be the case. I mean, stranger things have happened. And as we've seen, Saudi Arabia does seem very inevitable right now. They certainly have the resources to buy Endeavor if they wanted to. So I guess time will tell. But thanks so much for the question. then next we have a question from Carl Albert Rooster who asks, More of a broad and long question. Apologies. Since I've been following a lot of political-related sports content, i found myself starting to become discouraged and somewhat desperate about the future of sports, especially since nobody seems to care about the truth beneath all the glamorous sports events, such as the Football World Cup in Qatar, fighting events in Saudi Arabia, etc. How do you, yourself, go about staying motivated and maybe hopeful regarding the work you do? Well, honestly, Carl, I'd be lying to you if I told you that I'm always able to stay motivated, or hell, even hopeful when it comes to the type of work I do. I'd say 2023 has been quite a difficult year for me, apart from the fact that uh, we're watching sort of the inevitable rise of more authoritarians in sports. That is something I could have handled, but it's the fact that that's happening and coinciding with sort of the deterioration of sports journalism overall. I mean, just, I'll, I'll speak to my own personal experiences. This year, you know, my time at Bloody Elbow, the, the fantastic mixed martial arts website came to an end, and it came to an end because Vox Media, the, the massive uh, media conglomerate, decided that it didn't need to have yet another mixed martial arts website. So Bloody Elbow going independent, I wasn't, uh, they weren't able to match my salary that I used to make, and I decided to go independent. You know, that's a bit disappointing because we already had such few mixed martial arts spaces, uh, that were willing to do legitimate journalism, and that were going to employ somebody like me. So I'm so happy that Bloody Elbow is still around and has managed to succeed as an independent entity. And I really hope that goes on because... We legitimately need such entities in the space and across all sports, not just in mixed martial art, And really beyond that, I focused in the middle part of the year on a New York Times story about Leo Messi's... A partnership is ongoing partnership with the Tourism Authority in Saudi Arabia and it was a big deal of a story for me And I thought you know what maybe ending my time at Bloody Elbow was was meant to be as I continue to build my Resume with New York Times in the hopes that I would end up securing a full-time position in the New York Times sports division Unfortunately, we did publish the article the article made the front page of the New York Times, which is something that I'm exceptionally and exceedingly proud of however less than 10 days later the new york times announced that it was shutting down the sports section entirely so you want to talk about a swift kick in the ass that really demotivated me well that one was one of the one of the really major examples from this year and i actually went on to write an entire essay about it that's available on sports politica called an obituary to nyt sports uh, it might be worth your time as for how i actually attempt to stay motivated and hopeful well, the truth is, I believe in the type of work I do. I believe that, that there is an audience for this work as well. And based on starting Sports Politica, It appears that there is, there are thousands of you who now subscribe to my media platform. Regularly, I get messages of support and I have paid subscribers telling me to keep doing this and that I inspire them with the work I do. I have university students coming to me telling me they are shaping their thesis statements and their essays based off my work and are inspired by my work. This tells me that I'm still hitting a nerve and that's really important. As long as that remains the case, as long as I'm still able to continue educating people on these topics, raising awareness about such issues, giving lectures at universities about them, and traveling the world to conferences, speaking about these topics and continuing to raise awareness about them, I think that's a type of motivation that I need to continue doing this type of work. And I'll be honest with you. I have good days and I have bad days. I have days where I wake up and I feel like I can take on the whole world. I can write countless articles and I've got the motivation to just keep going. I can go on Twitter and see all the hate messages and just, you know, respond or let it wash over me like water off a duck's back. But then there are days where I don't even want to get out of bed. There are days where I think, why am I even doing this? There are days where I say, maybe all those haters were right. Maybe there isn't space for this type of reporting. So we're all human. We're going to have good days and bad days. The important thing is to learn your self-care routine, how to take care of your mental health, and how to wake up the next day with more motivation than the day before. So that's my response. But thanks for the excellent question, Kyle. And lastly, from Elliot Stample on Twitter, love your work. What are your thoughts on Connor intervening in Irish politics? And the second question is, I get you're pro-Palestine. But do you think Hamas started the war? So to answer the first part of your question, Elliot, I actually published, by the time you'll be listening to this, I'll have actually published a piece for the Guardian specifically on whether Conor McGregor appears to be entering Irish politics. I personally think he is, and given what we're seeing on his Twitter feed, given sort of the hints he's been dropping over the past few years. And given this sort of new populist wave he is riding and him emerging as a symbol of conservative Irish people and really the international far-right community, I think he's definitely primed to enter Irish politics. And unlike a lot of the uh, other UFC fighters and MMA fighters we've seen enter the political fray, Conor McGregor has far more resources and uh, is a far more popular figure overall, so he could do a lot more damage as well. So it will really be interesting to see what happens over the next few months and whether he does attempt to challenge the incumbent government. Now to answer the second part of your question, Elliot, yes, I am pro-Palestine, as you say, in that I share solidarity with Palestinians and the people of Gaza. I am appalled by the ongoing slaughter, I mean, the senseless violence, and the collective punishment of an entire people for the heinous crimes of an extremist Islamic group. More than fourteen thousand people have been killed in Gaza. I mean, take that in. Right, that's over ten times more than the number slaughtered by Hamas on October seventh. Most of whom are women and children. And through all that, Israel is no closer to ending the war. Yes. Hamas launched the horrific attacks that led to the latest round of fighting. And there is no justification for such attacks, especially the slaughter of innocent civilians. I can never support that. But likewise, there should be no justification for the ongoing destruction of Gaza, or the indiscriminate murder or forced removal of Palestinians. Israel has yet to come to terms with this. And until the state of Israel begins to treat Palestinians with dignity and respect, Until Palestinians are not subjected to the unlawful killings and forced evictions and arbitrary detentions, the cycle of violence will likely continue. And that's a wrap on the first edition of the Sports Politica podcast Q&A session. Thank you to everyone for sending in your questions, and please keep them coming. The best way to reach me is by subscribing to Sports Politica on Substack, where you'll be able to start your own threads and ask me questions on a regular basis. Sometimes I even answer them straight there in the threads rather than waiting to answer them here via audio. So please take a moment to subscribe to Sports Politica. Until then, take care.